You're listening to Cabrini Conversations, a podcast series that brings faculty together for cavalier conversations on research, current events, and pop culture. Hi, my name is Dr. Michelle Filling-Brown, and I chair the Department of English. And I'm Dr. Paul Wright, uh, also in the Department of English and uh, co-director of our honors program. And we're so excited to be here for the very first conversation. And today, uh, Paul and I are going to be talking a lot about women's issues and pop culture in America. And Paul and I had the great pleasure to teach together once before. Yeah. Uh, We taught a class a while back now called Social Realism and Literature in the Media. Uh, It's a course that focuses on uh, pop culture, uh, television in particular, but also literature. So we did a class on uh, the television series Mad Men, which was a lot of fun. We got a chance to talk with our students about advertising, feminism, corporate culture, a host of other things. So recently I have been thinking a lot about waves of feminism, and it's hard for me not to be thinking about it because of everything that we're seeing right now on TV and in the news. And this semester I'm teaching a course I've taught for many years that is called Bodies of Literature, Women's Studies in the Humanities. And I always teach about the waves of feminism. I could really do it in my sleep. So I always teach students the the different waves. So Uh, And I can sort of boil them down to really quick snapshots. So the first wave of feminism, thinking about women's rights to vote. And I always reference Mary Poppins and the the women's suffragette Mm -hmm. uh, banners. And then moving on to the second wave of feminism, thinking about black feminism, reproductive rights, education, gay rights, the stereotype of bra burners, which actually never even happened. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that story of when um, the women were protesting outside of the Miss America pageant, but they never actually got a permit to burn bras because the boardwalk is actually very flammable. So So, it's part of the mythology now. Right. So second wave of feminism. um, Then third wave of feminism when, you know, women's choices are all very valid. So women can be wearing power suits and working, but also can be mothers and balancing it all. And the fourth wave of feminism is we move everything onto social media. And obviously each of those waves are much more nuanced, but that gives you the quick snapshot. And but now I keep thinking about, um, you know, when is the fifth wave? What what does the fifth wave look like? And there's a part of me that thinks that we're moving into that wave right now. Um, and Paul, I know that you went to the Women's March, um, which is uh, perhaps interesting to some people as a cisgendered, heterosexual, white, middle class male mm-hmm. uh, that you chose to go to the Women's March. And It certainly was moving for me to see images on TV and seeing how intersectional the feminism was that I was seeing on TV and how intergenerational it was with children accompanying their parents. Um, Maybe you could talk for a minute about the images you saw. Sure. Um, It was a thrill to to go to the march. You know, it ended up being, I think, you know, one of the largest, if not the largest um, protests (laughs) in American history. Uh, And I wasn't sure at first if, if I was invited to go or not, <laughs> and uh, being a, a white male, middle-class male, as you describe. Um, but my partner, uh, she invited me and said, you know, there will be men there, you should go. And um, it was a really welcoming environment to everyone. Um, so I saw plenty of men there. Um, so I'll give you my take on it, but I, I want to kind of have a caveat there, which is, you know, still at the end of the day, I'm a man, and so I'm looking at it with those eyes. And uh, my experience of it shouldn't be taken to speak for all women's experience of it. So really, I was the um, participant, but I was also in a certain way um, even more of an observer. 
Um, what I found fascinating, besides all the energy at play that day um, and the sheer number of people, is that even uh, in the sort of worst bottlenecks of traffic among the crowds, and I was in one uh, in the train station uh, right down where the, where the march was happening, um, we couldn't get out of the train station for about an hour and a half. Wow. So you were just inching uh, forward. Um, I was actually standing in front of one of the uh, supporting actors on House of Cards, uh, who was also there for the march. Um, she, she played uh, uh, Frank Underwood's rival on the okay. show uh, for the presidency. Um, at any rate, uh, we were just stuck, you know, and it was so hot down there. But all the people in the train station who were stuck were um, chanting, um, singing, participating, kind of making the protest happen then and there, not just waiting till we all got outside. And it really built this powerful uh, sense of community, which spilled out into the streets. Um, the other thing I noticed, and, and maybe you can reflect on too, is the iconography of the event, um, the way in which the posters and the chants and people's relationship to their own identity as a resistance um, manifested. And I, I just give you a few examples. Um, you have, um, You've probably seen this online even, um, these posters of women in burqas, but the burqas are made of the American flag. Mm -hmm. So it was this way of sort of celebrating uh, alternative femininity, culturally specific femininity, um, celebrating um, Muslims as people who are welcome in our country and not barred, uh, and at the same time draping all of that quite literally in the American flag, um, which was a really, I think, moving message. Um, you had placards with the classic Rosie the Riveter uh, image going back to World War II, the one that says we can do it, you know, with a strong woman working the factories and helping the war effort, except now you saw that image of a white woman uh, transformed into women of color. Uh, right. And at one point, transformed into Princess Leia. So there was a we can do it Rosie the Riveter style Princess Leia poster. Um, and, of course, this all came on the heels of Carrie Fisher dying so sadly uh, way too soon. And I think she would have loved the fact that her character uh, ended up being an icon of this moment and this movement. Right. It's interesting to me that this, if we say this is a fifth wave or a new movement, is not being led by singular leaders. So when we think to the civil rights movement and the second wave of feminism, that there were there were specific leaders um, who unfortunately most of them were assassinated. And perhaps that's a value of this movement that there isn't a singular leader. As you mm -hmm. said, it's it's a community. It is it is groups of people. There's not one singular person. Yet mm -hmm. at the same time, all of the posters and images are of icons yeah. and hearkening back, as you said, to Rosie the Riveter, to Angela Davis, to images of black power, um, that there are all these different icons that have developed and that we're seeing intergenerationally that mothers and grandmothers are teaching their daughters and sons about these different icons and what they symbolize. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, knowing exactly what the fifth wave is, if we're in the middle of it or what it will be, it's hard to predict. But I think you've really hit the nail on the head in terms of some of the key features. And I think this idea of the icons 
leading the charge as opposed to individual leaders, images leading the charge as opposed to simply flesh and blood. People who are, of course, essential and, and central, right. but, but the images, in a sense, are more um, transcendent right now, it seems. And I think maybe if you're going to describe the fifth wave, it has something to do with a reclamation project, yes. uh, reclaiming icons that have historically represented resistance uh, but actually putting that resistance into practice. And I think at the same time, this is a reclamation of the streets. This is a reclamation of active protest out in the world, as opposed to simply on social media, as important a phenomenon as that remains. Right. It's almost a blending of those two mm -hmm. things. So if we say fourth wave is about social media, fifth wave is taking the activism and protests of the second wave yeah. and blending it with that social media, that we're organizing ourselves. There are these groups on social media where you're learning about different protests and marches, um, but that it, it's real and tangible and it's visible and it's yeah. on the news. Uh, and it's not really avoidable. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think, too, the 60s plays a large role in this. Now, of course, you know, at the march, I saw plenty of people who were there for the 60s and right. probably were in Washington, you know, marching for various causes. Um, but we also saw a ton of young people there who right. have been sort of energized and activated as uh, revolutionaries, if you will, for the first time in their lives. Um, and I think that's that's really essential to think about that legacy, that tradition. Again, I think that's where the reclamation project is happening. Um, one of the criticisms, of course, of, of my generation growing up, you know, the kids of the 1980s, is that we took all the music and all the art and all the countercultural iconography of the 60s and we corporatized it. We right. made it a consumer product that had no other meaning uh, besides that. Uh, so you end up with, you know, car commercials mainly targeted at men, you know, using Born to be Wild as a kind of soundtrack. Right. And so you're wondering, where is the actual wildness? Where is the actual spirit of rebellion that the 60s claimed to represent? And it could be now that we're in another kind of sea change moment where uh, that activism and the tradition, the history of our activism is being reclaimed. One of, one of the, the signs I saw said something to the effect of, I, my arm is tired from holding this sign for yeah. 40 years yeah. or, you know, whatever. Um, so let's talk about, we were talking about icons and thinking about what, um, what images of women we're seeing right now in our media. And I can't help but think about the Grammys that were Absolutely. just on TV and the, the really iconic image of Beyonce with a golden crown and pregnant with twins, with her other child in the audience. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about this? And also Adele. Introduced by her own mother at one point. Introduced yeah. by her own mother. Um, and, and her sort of celebration of motherhood and really, I would say, working motherhood, mm -hmm. right? So we've, we've seen lots of celebrities with their baby bumps on the red carpet, but here's a woman who's performing and working and really actively still in her craft and very pregnant and celebrating being a working mother and celebrating motherhood. And then in contrast, we have Adele, who has been very, very public about her postpartum depression and her struggles in finding herself as a mother. Mm -hmm. um, and that we saw those playing out on the stage. Yeah, we were talking about this recently, right? That. Um you know, it, it's not an either-or situation, <laughs> necessarily. Right. Uh, in other words, 
does a woman have to um, see pregnancy and, and the aftermath of pregnancy as gloom and doom, <laughs> uh, sort of Adele style, um, or does she, on the other hand, have to see her pregnancy as this ultimately empowering moment where one becomes the queen on the stage? And I think the reality, right, in, in practice, and even for Beyonce and Adele, I would say, the reality is that you know, in some moments of your day, you are, you know, Queen Bay, and, and at other moments of your day, you're, you're Adele, Adele and you're struggling. Uh, and there's a place for both of those emotions, not only amongst women, but within a single woman. Right, right. There was an article recently published by Naomi Schaefer Riley in the New York Post that I certainly reacted to, uh, where she was really critical of Adele and said, that our, quote, our cultural imperative to elevate motherhood to both the most important thing in the world and the hardest thing in the world is getting out of control. Uh, and really um, criticizing Adele and saying that her experience as a mother is not hard and mm. give us a break. Right. And I didn't react you know, kindly to that article for a whole host of reasons. Number one, there are there are many, many women who, number one, struggle to get pregnant to begin with. And that being a mother is very difficult. And it certainly is difficult when you're trying to balance a career and right. and figuring out who your identity is now as you have shifted into both mother and this person that you were before. Right. Um, and that being a parent is very difficult, and it's certainly difficult in the world that we live in today. Um, so I, I didn't think that that assessment was was a fair one. Yeah, when, when you shared that piece with me, when I was first reading it, I thought the author might be going to a place of saying uh, that Adele and Beyonce, uh, because of their class advantages, right, their wealth and their right. power as media stars, can't possibly understand what it's like to struggle with motherhood the way that other mothers, most mothers do. Right. But that's not where the piece went. It ended up being a kind of condemnation of um, any celebration of motherhood and also any recognition of how hard motherhood is. And so it felt like the, the piece had no point or purpose at the end of the day. Right. Um, and it didn't acknowledge the messiness of, of people's relationships to their own bodies pre- during and post-pregnancy, and their relationships to their own children, all of which is, by definition, messy. Right, right. Beyonce at the Grammys, of course, she had her spoken word piece as she was performing that was all about motherhood. And then in her acceptance, she said, it's important to me to show images to my children that reflect their beauty so they can grow in a world where they look in the mirror first with their own families, as well as in the Super Bowl, the Olympics, the White House and the Grammys and see themselves. This is something that I want for every child of every race. And I feel that it's vital that we learn from the past and recognize our tendencies to repeat our mistakes. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really powerful statement and certainly as someone who studies beauty culture myself, of someone in the media who is a celebrity and an icon herself calling out our world and mm -hmm. saying that we really need to think about what are the images that are out there, what are we teaching our children, and how are we valuing ourselves regardless of race, class, or gender. Yeah, I, I really respected that in her comments she also got to race. Um, and I think some of the uh, backlash that you might be hearing to, you know, a pregnant uh, Queen Bay mm -hmm. is, is, is about race. Um, and, and so it's not just seeing a proud pregnant woman, but seeing a proud, strong, pregnant black woman 
uh, on the stage, in the media spotlight. Uh, that is something, obviously, we should celebrate, but not everyone is going to celebrate it. And right. so I think there was an interesting moment, too, at the Grammys when uh, Adele, who won, I guess it was Album of the Year, the final right. kind of award, uh, ended up splitting her award in half. She kind of unscrewed the top of the Grammy to give the other half to Beyonce and basically said, um, you know, we're in this together and, and uh, you deserve the award more than I did. Your, your album was more important oh, yeah. for it, a host of reasons. Adele was just yeah. showering adorations yeah. on Beyonce. You know what it reminded me of, and you'll appreciate this, you know, in literary studies, we talk about the Bechdel test, right? So the Bechdel test has as its premise, right, uh, if you have a novel or a narrative or a film or whatever play uh, where two women can have a conversation and the subject is not men, you know, that, that it might actually be womanhood or at least their own bond or friendship or whatever, that that's kind of a key litmus test of how progressive a particular story might be in terms of gender roles. Um, and so in that moment, the Grammys, which, you know, have all sorts of chances to fail the Bechdel test and do, uh, in that moment, it sort of passed, right? Because it felt like there was a conversation going on between those two artists as women. Right, right. And, you know, and, and some people may be listening and thinking, like, what are these award shows? You know, do they really, why are we talking about them? They're just award shows. And even this morning on the radio, I heard someone talking about um, the Oscars this weekend and saying that people don't care about the Oscars. They're not tuning in and, and saying that really the Grammys are more fun because they're performances, which maybe to some extent that's true. Right. Um, but I really argue that these things are important, whether it be pageants or award shows or films, that this is what our culture is made of. And it's mm -hmm. what we talk about around the water cooler. It's what we think about in terms of how we view ourselves and how we view others. And it's informing what we think about beauty, what we yeah. think about values. And I, I really find them to be important to, to think about, to wrestle with. And of course, the Oscars are uh, on this weekend. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, heading into this, there are a lot of different uh, films that are nominated. One that I know I've talked with you about that I've been wrestling with is, is Fences, which we actually took Cabrini students to see Fences. It was our English department book club book. And uh, we went to see the film and we all loved it. It was beautiful and very much um, in keeping with the play. The film felt like a play. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought that the performances were just beautiful. And I, I fear that it's going to be a very overlooked film going into the Oscars and that maybe La La Land and some of the others um, may overshadow it, which um, makes me a bit sad. And even when we went to take students to see it, it was only showing at King of Prussia Theater at 3.20 in the afternoon. That was yeah. the only time it was playing. And that was less than a month after its release. Mm -hmm. So when you have a film that has an African-American cast and you're only showing it once a day in the mid-afternoon, it's going to be difficult to fill those seats. Yeah. Um, so that made me sad for that film, and I'm, I'm really rooting for it this weekend. Well, it's kind of proof, right, that um, you know the, the main line, which is wealthy and, and predominantly white, and you're thinking King of Prussia Mall, right, is not creating a space for kind of alternative visions of America and of the world. So there may be a story behind the, the rare screening of that film. Um, I think it's a wonderful, um, it's a play originally, correct? Yes. Yeah. And the author again, reminds August me. Wilson. That's right, August Wilson. Uh, I was reading recently that Wilson for a long time did not surrender any rights to make a film version 
because he wanted, uh, you know, an African-American to, to direct and produce. Right. And so it took forever to actually have this film come into being. And then to get two powerhouse talents like Denzel Washington and Viola Davis uh, to be the leads, you know, you couldn't ask for uh, a better cast. Right. Um, and yet, again, it's a film that's kind of falling by the wayside. And I don't think that reality does much to change the charge of the Oscars so white. You know, there was that whole campaign that started um, a few years back now. Right. Um, you also have another campaign going on, the Oscars so young, sort of that, it, that the Oscars are now privileging youth over any kind of experience, you know, or, or, or right. older actors, that kind of thing. And I love that you said Davis as the lead, yeah. because of course she's nominated in the supporting actress role. And mm-hmm. certainly when I finished wiping my tears away at the end of that film from her performance, to me, she's the leading lady. But of course, there's a whole lot of politics that go behind yeah. those nominations and uh, where someone might be best suited to win. But right. for me, she is the leading lady of that film, and her acting is just phenomenal. Yeah, I, I like that you mention uh, the positioning of her nomination. And this is um, a, a function of a very complex Um, political and economic landscape in Hollywood that has a lot to do with studios advancing candidates in particular categories as opposed to others. So Denzel Washington, for example, there's no way anyone on the planet will ever think of him as a supporting actor, right? At this point, he is a leading actor. Anything he's in, even (laughs) if he's in it very briefly, he's going to feel like a lead. Um, One of the ironies there, though, is his first Oscar was as a supporting actor for Glory. So uh, in a part that didn't feel like a supporting part to me when I saw it. So you have Denzel, a male actor on the one hand, right, uh, that you would never envision positioning, you know, if you're a studio as anything other than a lead actor. Whereas Viola Davis did get positioned by the studios for best supporting actor. Um, actress, um, with an eye towards her winning. And and maybe at the end of the day, she's content with that. I'm sure she wants to win an Oscar. And hopefully she wins. And hopefully she wins. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the idea was that the best actress race was going to be so crowded, so competitive, and Meryl Streep's going to be in it. You know, you're always wondering about her. She's going to get nominated and maybe win again. Right. Uh, So the studio, from a purely economic standpoint, and maybe Viola Davis's agent from a purely um, protect-my-client standpoint, uh, decided that she ought to be advanced in that category because she'd have a good chance of bringing it home. Well, we will see as we watch the Oscars what happens and, and what plays out. But I think that it's important for us to keep looking at all of these images that we're seeing of motherhood, of womanhood, of feminism as we watch the news, as we tune in to see the Oscars, to watch award shows, and really think about uh, is something shifting for women? And certainly as we are a university that is founded on very strong women, um, not only Mother Cabrini, but our foundress, and then also the, the women who walk these hallways as the first class of Cabrini College. And now looking at the men and women that are here at Cabrini University, certainly we are so proud of the tradition that this university is built on. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how our world changes and is shaped in the coming years so that hopefully the men and women that are at our university really have the best opportunities that they possibly can have as they venture into the world and uh, that 
that doors are not closed to them and that they can really truly achieve anything that they want to. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and it's really interesting to see Cabrini transforming now to include more and more um, people of color and women of color and women from abroad, international students. So I think the, the challenges you lay out and the opportunities you lay out in your comments are really uh, more pressing to us than ever. I'm really excited coming up uh, here at Cabrini University on March 16th. We have Whitney Way Thor, uh, who is the reality TV star of My Big Fat Fabulous Life, and she's the founder of the No Body Shame campaign. And she's going to be speaking in the mansion at 7 p.m. It's open to everyone, and I think a great opportunity for people to continue to wrestle with what are images of women that we see on TV. And certainly, Whitney's someone who is challenging mm -hmm. uh, those ideals and uh, I'm really excited to have her here and and a long long legacy of really great speakers we've had on our campus and excited to have her here as part of our program. Yeah, Cabrini is a really vibrant cultural community we have so much going on and I'm proud to say the English department loves to contribute to that agenda we have lots of things going on so please do come out. Well, thank you so much for listening to our conversation today. It's been nice chatting with you, Paul. You too. I don't get to see you enough, so I'm glad we could schedule some time together. Absolutely. <laughs>